Well, good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, Hunter family, thank you for hosting me for the last few days. I don't know if you know this. It'd be weird if he told you himself. But you all got a great pastor. It's a joy to be here. I need you all to do something as I go about this task. I need you to pray for me. I don't know you. I want to serve you. And I have a very strange text that I did not pick. (laughs) Your pastor did. I gave him options. This is the one he picked. So pray for me as I pray for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are, as we just sang, the ruler of all. Help us to believe it. And help us to know why we should. In Jesus' name, amen. The strange text that we have before us this morning is Revelation chapter 17. If you're new to the Bible, just go to the end. There's some words and there's some maps. Keep going until you hit the last book of the Bible. You'll get the big number 17 in Revelation. And all I can say as you listen to this is uh, embrace the weirdness. Here's what it says. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls and holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman, and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom, the seven Heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other is not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seventh, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour 
together with the beast, these are of one mind, and they hand their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and those who are with him are called the chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages, and the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire, for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handling over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Amen. Told you it was weird. The title of today's sermon is Wrong Won't Win. And you might be thinking, I don't even know what's going on, so could you please help me out? I think the best way to understand what's going on here is actually to return to 1995. In 1995, Henry Orenstein, a survivor of the Holocaust, transformed poker from one of the most boring events on television to a worldwide phenomenon. What Orenstein did was invent something called the whole card camera, a a tiny camera that was built into the poker table that did only one little thing to show the viewing audience what each player has. Now, normally, it's uh, entertaining and leads to some witty banter from the commentators. You don't even have to really know what's going on to just see. It's like you're in on a secret, and you know what everybody else has, but they don't know what each other has. Usually, it's just entertaining, but every once in a while, magic happens. Because every once in a while, there's somebody at the table who's got a pretty good hand. And the whole time they've been bragging and throwing their weight around. And and yet, we the viewers, nobody else knows something that not even that player knows. That while their cards are pretty good, they stand exactly zero chance of winning. It's a marvelous thing to see play out. Man, that's just poker on television. Don't you wish that it was kind of true with the big enemies in our lives? I'm not talking about the little things that annoy you. I'm talking about cancer and crippling debt. Shoot, even death itself. Don't you wish that though things look bad, they can't win? What if I told you that while the enemies of all our lives is worse than we think, it doesn't have a chance of winning at the end of the day? What if I told you that all of us could know who was going to win and how the winning was going to happen? Well, I can in our text this morning. 
It's exactly what's going on in Revelation 17. One of the stranger chapters in Revelation, which if you've ever read any part of Revelation, you know is saying something. I think what's going on here, in the midst of this madness, one thing becomes clear. Wrong won't win. Because the lamb can't lose. It's as simple as that. It's what I want to prove to you this morning. God's lamb can't lose. That's what's at the heart of this chapter. that vividly describes the terrifying nature of those who are in opposition to God. How they're no match for God's lamb, Jesus Christ. This text is meant to give you and I, and everybody who's ever listened to this text, Christian or not, anybody listening in, an understanding of who this God is in order that we might have absolute confidence in him. Because while the enemy's terrifying, it can't win. So really, there's only one question that you should be asking yourself, whether you've asked it before or whether you're like brand new to church and you don't even know what you're doing here. One question that I want you to be asking yourself this whole time. Do I trust in the lamb that can't lose? Everything in your life rides on the answer to that question. Because be clear, the enemy is a monster. And it's coming for every single one of us. That's what you get in verses 1 through 6. The, the first part of this strange text is really a terrifying image. Now, to understand where we are here just really briefly, the first 16 chapters of Revelation have been a lot like this one in many ways. Pretty bizarre, wild imagery of sights and sounds. Stuff that is frankly out of this world. A cosmic battle of good and evil. One that has devastating effects here on earth. And while that sounds kind of unbelievable, I mean... Wherever you come from this morning, whatever you came in here believing this morning, don't you kind of suspect that to be true, that there's something else going on in the world? I mean, shoot, all kinds of cultures all over the world through all of time have dealt with this kind of stuff in their music and in their art. Why? Because there just seems to be something going on out there. A revelation comes along and goes, oh yeah, that's for real. There's a great enemy and an even greater God. We see that enemy here called Babylon go down in chapter 16 as God uses seven angels with bulls to pour out his wrath on the whole earth. And the last two bulls are reserved for Babylon. And in chapter 16, Babylon burns to the ground. In our passage, one of those seven angels comes walking over in verse one with one of those empty bulls. And starts talking about the destruction of Babylon. Now, you don't have to be a literature major to go like, hold on a second. I'm also not a math genius, but 16, Babylon gets destroyed. 17, the destruction of Babylon is discussed like, I thought we already did that. 
And we did. So why do it again? It's because John, the author of this book, wants you and I to understand something. That Babylon, a city that represents all that is opposed to God and ruinous to human life, is really, like really, really, really going down. Can't win. Friends, don't you wish that everything that was wrong in the world would come untrue? Is it one of your greatest fears that maybe it won't? text exists to tell us that Babylon, the symbol for all that is wrong in the world, won't win. But believe me, Babylon is terrifying. Babylon is here as pictured as a prostitute, incredibly seductive, drawing all kinds of people towards her. She's seated on many waters, which is weird language, but ripped right out of Jeremiah chapter 51. Why is John, the writer of this book, picking the pocket of Jeremiah that was written hundreds and hundreds of years before this? Simply this, because in Jeremiah 51, God is talking about the destruction of Babylon in Jeremiah's day, and here's what you need to know. A little while after Jeremiah wrote, Babylon went down. And John, who's talking about a much bigger and badder Babylon, goes, hey, by the way, uh, the thing I'm about to talk about, you saw burn up in chapter 16, it's really going down. You just got to look back in history. You know that one that went down? Yeah, this one's going down too. And if you've got questions about this one, just look back at that one and go, well, if that, then maybe this. Got some good news, friends. Babylon always loses. Doesn't stand a chance, but believe me, she goes down swinging. Uh, verse 2 gives us a rather graphic and uncomfortable explanation of idolatry. Uh, throughout the Bible, Babylon stands as the symbol of worldly power and economic well-being. And the kings of the earth, I mean, it's just right there, are pictured as having sex with the symbolic ideal of that system. Now you might be thinking, that is gross. You are right. That's what idolatry is. And that's just the language we have. Imagine what idolatry is actually like to God. Because that's all we've got. You go, that makes me feel uncomfortable. That's the purpose. It's super weird. Maybe what's even worse is the way she's dressed in verses 3 through 5. You might be like, I don't know what all this means. Scarlet beast, blasphemous names, seven heads, seven heads, arrayed in purple and scarlet, verse 4, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. What's up with all this? Well, it's clothing very similar to Old Testament priests. I think this is what John is trying to tell you and me. The worldly and economic powers that are at war against us often come in the guise of religious clothing. We see it throughout time, no less in our own day. Think of prosperity gospel. 
Give to God and He'll give back more to you. Seed your faith and you'll see miracles. Shockingly, the place you should seed your faith is always in my pocket. If it doesn't work, that's on you. It's an absolute abomination and destroys many, many lives, often the lives of the poorest amongst us. Maybe even you. Someone you know. I mean, let's be honest. You might be here and go like, I don't even know what I'm doing here. I don't believe in this God because religious people calling themselves Christians have used God to rip off people that I know. Take heart. Know this. God hates such practices. Now, I'm imagining that most of you aren't really kind of tempted by the whole prosperity gospel thing. But believe me, Babylon comes dressed in religious clothing to all of us. So let's get a little closer to home. The gospel of the American dream. Not not necessarily that God's going to give you a Bentley, but God probably, you know, I mean... You're a good member of this church. You're going to come today, and depending on what letter of your name you're, you could bring soup or sandwiches. And so while God might not give you a Bentley, he'll probably make your Buick one run real good. He might not give you wealth, but I mean, you deserve health, right? The gospel of the American dream dresses in religious garb, but it is nothing but a prostitute. The crazy thing about Babylon is it's not just seductive, it's also destructive. Just look at verse 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. I told you at the beginning, and I'll say it again, that Babylon's coming for all of us. Doesn't matter who you are, or what you believe, or where you came from. For some of us, it comes as seduction, drawing us towards it. For others, it comes as destruction. Regardless, it's coming for us all. Babylon wants nothing less than the devotion of a lover. So, friends, do you love Babylon this morning? I mean, be clear, she won't love you back. But also, be honest. She's pretty seductive. I'm not just talking about like those, you know, weak Christians out there. I mean, shoot, just take John for an example. Look what he does. Right there, middle of verse 6, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. It seems that for a moment, even, even John is seduced. Well, it's hard to understand, maybe when you stand at a distance, if you just kind of think back on the last week, it probably becomes pretty obvious that it's seductive to all of us. Can you identify? I know I can. It's like... It's like when I'm up late at night. I love staying up late at night. And I have a vision. It's of a vision. 
of the world's largest and most gloriously tasting sandwich in the whole world, which also, sadly, often is the unhealthiest. And, there, and there's no reason in the world to create a 7,000-calorie sandwich at 2 o'clock in the morning. You start drooling, thinking about it. it. It's like that, the seduction of Babylon. But the stakes are far higher. And the costs are far greater. I mean, shoot, we should ask, is there any way to escape this devouring, seductive power of the prostitute Babylon? It seems... seems too powerful. Her charms seem irresistible. It's a good question. It's the right question. It's the question that's answered in the rest of this text as we move from the terrifying image to the triumphant explanation in verses 7 to 18. Remember that John isn't the only one in the scene. This whole thing kicked off because an angel with an empty bowl comes walking over, recently uh, emptied with the wrath of God. He sees John marveling at the woman and goes, whoa, what are you? verse 7, you knocked that off. What are, you, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why, verse 7, do you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman. Now, here's what you got to know about mystery in the Bible. Mystery is not like your favorite like mystery books or mystery shows or whatever. Those are cool. I love those. That's not what this is. Mystery in the Bible is something that used to be unknown and now is being revealed. So he's like, okay, listen, I'm going to tell you everything about what's going on here that you're seeing that you're seduced by. Super helpful now, you might be thinking, well, it would be super helpful, but if I was paying attention the first time around, this helpful explanation is not so helpful, because it is so weird. It is weird. Angel begins to reveal the mystery. Interestingly, this beast, verse 8, is particularly... Strange, because of something that's said about it. It was and is not and is about to rise. In other words, the present state of the beast is one of being defeated. The beast mimics Jesus in his life and death and resurrection. Over and over again in this book, we've been told up to this point that when it comes to Jesus, he was and is not and is to come. And now the beast is kind of like Jesus, which is terrifying. But notice, here the beast is about to rise and then be defeated. In other words, wrong can't win. This, by the way, is like the greatest uh, anticlimactic chapter maybe in all of Revelation. This often happens. This stuff would make for like... Uh, crazy movie, but it's all build up and then it just resolves in a second. It's kind of useless storytelling in some ways because you're like, yeah, okay, here comes the bat. Oh, never mind. I thought there was going to be a cool fight or whatever, and then it just ends. 
Well, it's going to rise and then just be defeated. Regardless, the beast draws worship right there in verse 8 from the world because of its seeming inability to die. I mean, isn't that what makes the world so seductive, friends? All this stuff that like has never paid off for you, but you think maybe I'll just give into it one more time because maybe this time it'll work. It's because it never seems to lose for anybody else, just you. The problem of having it so good is that the party seems like it's never going to end. So tempting to buy into the lie and live for myself today and nothing more, but to do so would be to follow the beast and to follow the beast down into inevitable destruction. But that's just the beginning of the craziness. I mean, in verse 9, this whole section really jumps off into the crazy land. Seven heads or seven mountains or seven kings. What? And there's the fun math puzzle in 10. It's five plus one plus one. And you're like, okay, I don't know about this. I'm going to go back to Philippians. Then we have the addition in verse 11 that the beast is the eighth but belongs to the seventh. What are, you supposed to, what are we supposed to do with all of this? Well, I mean, to begin with, if you feel bewildered, you're welcome. That's what the text is supposed to do. We can get a general handle, though, on what's going on here. Mountains throughout the Bible are places of authority, which makes sense because they're tall. It's not just true for Judaism and Christianity. Ancient Near East religions and the time and place in which all this stuff was written all had these kinds of like mountains or places that are closer to the gods, therefore they're probably like divine-like places. seems that these are worldly powers that are coming against the people of God. And all these divine-like ruler kings opposed to God's people, it's all pretty gross. Sounds bewildering and terrifying, but that's the point, but don't miss the main thing. Verse 11, it comes around for a second time in case we missed it the first time. As for the beast, it was and is not and is the eighth, but it belongs to the seventh, and it goes to destruction. You're like, come on, I thought we were in for a fight. No, wrong can't win, friends. It, it, it's all show. You go, yeah, but what about those ten horns? Those are pretty weird. You're right. Especially when you think about like that Jesus, chapter 5, is pictured like a lamb that's got seven horns. And again, you're like, okay, I'm not real good at math, but ten sounds like more than seven. And you're right. The lamb with seven horns, horns being these like symbols for authority. And the lamb's got seven of them. He's got all this authority. And now there's ten. Oh, no, that looks like it's more authority than Jesus. You ever feel, Christian, that the world's going to win? You should, you should just also know that it can't. It's the way it goes. Most terrifying time is when you think that we might be winning here and now because it's not true. It leads to incredible discouragement. The winning that we're looking for is not necessarily here and now, but there and then. But it's inevitable because wrong can't win because the lamb can't lose. I mean, just look at it. 
ten horns, all this authority. Worship the beast. Sounds like an impossible enemy. It's all building up, and then you just get verse 14. And again, everything is ruined. They'll make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. Oh, man, I was in for like a Lord of the Rings kind of deal. Nah. They all get ready to fight, and then the lamb just shows up and whoops everyone. I mean, just look at his titles. Those are pretty cool. Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Lamb can't lose, friends. I got a question. Is this the lamb you follow? He's got all power and all authority. No enemy stands a chance. And if you don't follow him, listen, I want to be really clear. You're going to lose everything forever. The worst fate humanly imaginable. You might be thinking, okay, I I don't want that to happen to me. I mean, what does it even mean to follow the Lamb who is Lord? How do you even do that? Well, let me tell you where you start. Starts by recognizing that you've put your trust and hope for life, liberty, and happiness in the wrong thing. And you follow Jesus instead. The Lamb who can't lose. If you want to know more of what that means, more of what that looks like, number one, come and talk to me after the service because I'd love to talk to you. And number two, keep coming back here because really all of the Christian life is learning what that looks like, turning away from the wrong kinds of things and to Jesus and following him wherever he goes forever. Now, if you do follow the Lamb, then be at peace, because look at what it says about you in verse 14. You are chosen and faithful. Now, I want to be real clear. That is an encouragement and an exhortation. Oh, you're chosen, encouragement, exhortation, and faithful. Don't forget it. Friends, remaining faithful is not easy especially when there's a prostitute riding a ten-horned dragon that looks like it's going to win, who's drinking for fun the blood of your brothers and sisters. Not easy. You don't have to raise your hand, but I just want to ask you, did you walk in here this morning as a Christian thinking, you know this Christian life thing is pretty hard. Is it supposed to be this hard? According to texts like this, the answer is, yeah. Absolutely. We're chosen. We need to remain faithful. The battle won't stop until we're dead. My friends, you go into battle walking behind a lamb who can't lose, who's king of kings and lord of lords. So just keep walking behind him. that weren't encouraging enough, we've got the reality of how Babylon goes down. It's the last few verses of this passage. I'm going to read it again. Just pay attention to how this whole thing collapses. 
Beginning in verse 15, the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are the peoples and the multitudes and the nations and the languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Here's the thing, friends. You're reading that right. If you're thinking, hold on. According to this passage, like before this, it's the lamb who takes out the enemies. And according to the end of this passage, it's the enemy that consumes itself? Yep. You want to know how inevitable it is that the enemy loses? You want to know how true it is that wrong can't win? Wrong fights against itself in the end and destroys itself. So you got the lamb, king of kings, lord of lords, destroying it. You have it destroying itself. And if you were to ask, well, how do I know that's going to happen? Because that doesn't sound normal. I mean, it says right there in 17, for God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose of being one mind. Friends, know this, even the devil is God's devil. <laughs> like, it, it's so inevitable that we're going to win, it's a joke. It doesn't look like it. It is terrifying all the way to the end. But friends, take heart, wrong can't win. We have seen the pocket cam on the poker table of history. Babylon is holding a really great hand. No doubt about it. But know this. The lamb can't lose. Let's pray. God, we thank you for terrifying and yet incredibly encouraging word in Revelation 17 this morning. I pray for those who are here who have never heard anything like this or who've heard this but not quite understood. I pray that you would help them understand While wrong won't win, the lamb can't lose. And so, through understanding that, would you work in them to turn and follow the lamb? And for those who are following, I pray that you would give them incredible encouragement and drive. Encouragement that we have been chosen as your people to follow that lamb wherever he goes. And that he won't lose. In order that we might remain faithful all the days of our lives. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.